Well, go ahead and have a seat and turn with me, if you would, to the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. I went away. Hello. <laughs> uh, we will be returning to the book of Matthew in, uh, in February, but we're going to start uh, the new year off with uh, a little bit of a different series. And so we're going to start out in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and read through chapter 4, verse 4. I told Jennifer this morning that um, I said, I bet with the sexuality series starting second service, we're going to have a really full service and a really empty second service. And with some of the faces that I'm seeing, I'm guessing that's correct. Uh, It it could be a a shy place next hour, but we'll just have to see. Uh, Maybe God will surprise me as well. All right, uh, hopefully you've had some time to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. I don't know why. I don't think there's anything to this. Remember, chapters and verses were added later. But 3.16 in many verses turns out to be very important. And uh, here that holds true in 2 Timothy. So uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 through 4.4. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, And for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Last year, we started out uh, the year by talking about this uh, this vision that the elders had uh, really not changed. It wasn't something we, we dreamed up, uh, but we kind of released some, some new language or, or uh, revealed some new language just in terms of our mission and vision. Uh, the mission of a church, that is its purpose, um, is not something that can be toyed with. It's not something that that every church just gets to say, oh, well, what do we want to do this year or for the next five years or ten years or this season? The mission of the church, the reason that God has left you and I as believers in this world is assigned by him. Now, that's not to say that churches don't word it differently in different places, but one of the things is, and I think this is a good thing, is if you look at uh, mission statements from churches, though they might use different words, effectively, they're often saying the exact same thing. And that's a good thing, because as churches open God's word and say, what is the purpose of the church, and God's word is not silent about the purpose of the church, we kind of uh, really just put that in our own words. Our own words was just a retooling of what had already existed. However, what had already existed at Trinity, um, I, I asked a bunch of people leading up to last year, hey, what's, what's Trinity's mission? And most people could only give me the second half. I don't know that I was able to talk to anybody who was able to give me the whole thing. Not that it was a bad mission statement, it was just really long, and so most of us had kind of picked up the second half, and so really what we ended up doing was kind of just shrinking that one down. And what we talked about, and what we've been talking about over the last year, is that Trinity exists to take steps together to love God and make Him known. 
to take steps together to love God and make him known. And last January, we looked at this kind of in four parts. That the first part is that we're taking steps. We're all in progress. None of us have arrived. I was talking to somebody this week who uh, grew up in a Nazarene church. And if you don't know much about the Nazarene church, they believe that in this life, you can become absolutely perfect and sinless. And I was like, hey, how did you end up going from the Nazarene church to Trinity? That's a pretty big jump. You know, this holiness movement is, is what it's often called. And he said, well, I kind of just didn't know those things growing up. But there are churches out there that, that teach that uh, Joyce Meyer is probably one of the primary examples she believes to be sinless, herself to be sinless, and that she has arrived and attained to perfection. Now, we don't believe that. Um, I'll just be real honest and tell you, you don't live, no, I'm just kidding. Actually, what I was going to say is I don't live up to that. None of us do. We're all in progress. And I think what God is most concerned with today is not our perfection. He has supplied the life and death of Jesus Christ to be our perfection. We don't have to be perfect because Jesus is. What God wants from us today is to, to take today's step towards becoming like Jesus. And we, do, we don't do that with a bunch of rules and and, 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 hey, this is what you do and don't do. Yeah, certainly some of those exist in God's word. And they're for our protection and for our good. But we do that by, by looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. By beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And when we adore him and delight in him and behold him, the inevitable pro process is that we become like him. We're all taking steps. And we're taking steps together. Together is the best way that we grow. Uh, together is by far the best way we grow. Many of us probably know Proverbs 27, 17. I think we've got it up on the screen for you. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. What's the only way to cut a diamond? With a diamond, right? This is the way God has made us. He has made us to grow in community. Sometimes that community is in rows, like right now. Sometimes that community is in circles, like adult Bible fellowships and growth groups. And really, I think we need both rows and circles to grow our, our best. There's two main sources of this growth in our life. I think by God's grace, he's given two primary means by which we grow into likeness of Jesus. And that is God's word and God's people. God's word and God's people. Um, did, did you know that uh, it wasn't that long ago, within the last year to year and a half or so, the Surgeon General listed one of the, the most uh, concerning epidemics among people today as being loneliness? That he wants the, the U.S. government to take loneliness as seriously as we take drug addiction. He finds it to be as dangerous I think probably there's a lot of us in here who, who are lonely. And, and I think most of us probably know what we need in response to that loneliness. But there's some fear or anxiety or trepidation about, about what it might take. You know, if, hey, going and sitting in a row at church is somewhat easy, but sitting in a circle and having to be honest with people, that's much harder. 
That's where next week's message is going to come into play, where we have to own the perfection of Jesus Christ as our safety in relationships. Because who can bring any charge against God's elect? No one. It's God who justifies. Sure, spend a little bit of time with me, and you'll see sinful things come out of me. And Jesus has covered them all. But but people are lonely. And so we're taking steps but we're taking steps together. And I think our togetherness determines the speed at which we take those steps. Those steps are to love God. That's our responsibility. It's the greatest commandment, to love God. That's how we become like him, is to be like him. If there's ever been somebody in your life whom you adore and, want, and just you think they're the, the greatest person you've ever met, you ever notice the more time you spend with those people, the more you become like them? You pick up their mannerisms and things like that. Um, We're we're taking steps together to love God. And as we're around people who love God, we're challenged to love God. We, We grow in our love of God and we become more and more like him. And then lastly, we looked at our responsibility is to love God and to make him known. And in fact, I would say that those two things go hand in hand. If we love God, we will make him known. He's commanded that we make him known. Why not make him loved? Well, because in many ways, that's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to attend to our affection for the Lord and to tell others about him so that they might love him too. But we can't make anybody who doesn't love God love God. And so the best we can do is tell people about who he is and hope that they too join in loving him. I think naturally, Churches tend towards one or the other. And I don't think that's inherently a bad thing. Um, I I, I think uh, inherently the DNA of a church leads it to either uh, to to focus primarily on um, loving God or primarily on making him known. Now, the addition of the word primarily in some sense does present a problem. The natural bent one way or the other, that's not problematic. But, but sometimes what happens amongst churches is we, we focus on one to the neglect of the other. We're so, work, we're, we're so focused on knowing God and teaching his word and knowing more and having Bible studies and being with believers that we ignore the world around us. If, if we survey history, one of the things that we find is that those churches, they tend to die. They get old and die. Because they're just so focused on their own learning, their own growth, their own little portion of the kingdom that no new believers ever come in. And as a result of that, the church just ends. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there's the church that's so focused on spreading the gospel to people and, and, and not really worried about discipling people. Uh, I've seen pastors literally on stage do ridiculous things, like with gigantic high chairs, saying if you want more Bible study, you're like a big baby. Like crazy stuff like that. Like, hey, if you want to know God, whose word, by the way, says that we're supposed to move on in maturity, that that you're just a big baby. These churches don't often die. Um, They're just usually not very healthy. And what happens is people get saved. They start attending to that church. uh, They start attending that church. And then they begin to feel starved. 
for, for more. And they leave and they go somewhere else that will disciple them. Now, you might be saying, well, if that's the case, why does the first church die if they're leaving to go to disciple-making churches? It's because usually those, I think, this is my opinion, I'll be honest about that, that what happens in those shallower, primarily evangelism-focused churches, people come into those churches, they get saved, they start attending, they don't experience the growth they want, they feel like they're starving on the vine, they leave, but they don't leave to go to churches that are inwardly focused. Because they became believers because somebody went out and shared Jesus with them. And they still have a concern for that. And so I think they tend to settle in churches that try and, and have a balance of, of both. And I want us to be that kind of church. I want us to be the, the kind of church that, that balances both. That says we, we want to invest in believers and evangelize unbelievers. We want to reach the lost and disciple those who already know Jesus. I think... Our natural bent, and certainly if Trinity's natural bent is not this way, mine is, our natural bent is to love God at the expense of making him known. And so one of those will come very easy for us. And one of those we're going to have to to give uh, special attention to. It's kind of why I beat this drum all of the time. It's not to beat you up. It's just to constantly put a reminder before all of us, but before me and you, that there are people out there who don't know Jesus, and our mission is to take steps together to love God and make him known. And in fact, we probably could have said, though this would, not, this would be a partial truth, that we love God by making him known. And so this, that, that was kind of our focus last year. And out of that came this, this idea of 500 in 5. Now, the 500 in 5, it's just a tool, right? It, it was just a tool. It just intended to be something that gave us something measurable, something to reach for, um, something to try and, and, and ask ourselves the question, are we being faithful? And so we put the board up out here with the stones, which in large part has primarily become a plaything for the kids, and so I think the stones aren't accurate at all. And quite frankly, that doesn't matter to me because it really is just a tool that was intended to keep something before us, and that is that I'm supposed to get to know people I don't know, who don't know Jesus, and I'm supposed to befriend them, And I'm supposed to share the gospel with them. And darn it if Peter didn't say that all of us, not just pastors, but all of us, are supposed to practice hospitality without grumbling. Sometimes the additions to the commands, like we got one of these in this text. Preach the word with complete patience. Come on, Paul. Couldn't you have just left the complete patience off of this passage right here? Come on, Peter, couldn't you have just left the without grumbling off? Nope, God knows what he's doing. We can't can't truly claim to follow Jesus if we're not living the kind of life that is hospitable to, and hospitality is is primarily towards those we, we don't know. It's not when your best friend comes over. That's called Saturday. Hospitality is when you open your home to people you, you don't really know very well yet. So that they might uh, get to know who Jesus is. And, and so the 505, it's just a tool. 
It was, it was only ever intended to be something that was measurable, that we could say, yes, we, we are, are taking steps together to love God and make him known. But one of the things that went along with that was some values, because we wanted to ask the question, what shapes ministry at Trinity? What's going to define the way Trinity does ministries? And, and we talk about leadership at Trinity in, in terms of a box. You know, um, I'll, just, I'll just pick on Jennifer because she's sitting right here. Um, and, and I see her a lot, so she's the one who gets to be picked on. Um, but as, as she leads children's ministry, she has freedom to, to operate in this box in a way that it reflects her gifting, uh, her passions, her desires. But she doesn't get to move outside of the box. And the box that hems all of us in has four sides to it. There's the mission of the church, we, the, like mission and vision. We don't, we don't get to cross that. We don't get to say, hey, uh, you know, this is the mission and vision in Trinity, but I want to do something else. If you want to do something else, as staff members, we're going to have to go somewhere else. The, the next side of that is doctrine. We don't get to toy with the doctrine of the church. We're, we're hemmed in by that. And then there's budget. We don't get to play with the budget. Uh, the budget, the doctrine, that's all set by, uh, by the congregation in our, our membership meetings. And so we don't get to say, oh, well, I know that's the, the budget. I've been given this much, but uh, I really want to do something that costs more than that. I'm just going to spend all the money I want. That would be irresponsible. And the last side of the box is our values, the things that we value in ministry. So mission and vision, budget, doctrine, and values hem us all in. And as we work our way up the chain, uh, the, the boxes get bigger. And so um, as far as staff is concerned, I, I probably have the largest box. I get the most uh, input, info, and, influ and, and, and those kind of things in the ministry uh, at Trinity as far as the staff is concerned. Next up for me is the elders. And if I want to operate outside of my box, I have to go to them uh, for permission to do that. And outside of the box of the elders is the box of the members. And that's, uh, and just in earthly terms, that's the largest box at Trinity. If the elders want to start playing with uh, budget or vision or things like that, we have to ask the church. We have to ask your permission uh, as well. And so we're all kind of boxed in. But that's kind of an aside. All of these things are to say that, that the values of Trinity, they kind of... They, they, they shape the ministries at, at Trinity, that all of the ministries of Trinity have to value the values. And so this, uh, this January and then a couple weeks into February, we're going to be looking at these values that the elders have uh, labored over. And so these are the things that give shape to Trinity's ministry. And today, we're going to talk about the first value, it's the only one that is specific in order. It is the one that appears at the top of the list. And that value is the Bible. It is the Word of God. Because the Word of God does the work of God by the Spirit of God. It's, it's, I'm going to say that again in just a second. But it's the Word of God. We're not saying that the Bible is the only important thing we do at Trinity. That's not why it gets to be the top of the list. We're saying that God's word, scriptures, the Bible, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, they inform all of the things that we are supposed to do as a church. And so because they inform all of the values and, and ministries and practices, this one must go first. So, But more than just informing all the others, I'm going to say that again, the word of God 
does the work of God by the Spirit of God. Isaiah 55, 11 is a passage that probably many of us know, and I believe you have this on the screen as well, which says, so shall my word be that goes, uh, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Whatever purpose it is for God's word, whatever purpose it is he sends it out for, it will accomplish. I've I've been trying to think about what's, what's next after the book of Matthew. And one of the things that I've been thinking about, I, I haven't really uh, decided on this, feel free to weigh in as to whether or not you like this idea, is, uh, is the book of Revelation. But the reality of the book of Revelation is that I think it's given for two purposes. I don't think it has a single purpose. And God's word doesn't always have a single purpose. I think the book of Revelation exists to encourage saints and terrify sinners so that they might become saints. But, but whatever purpose it is for which God gives his word, it will accomplish that thing. It succeeds in whatever he purposes. This is why we read Ezekiel's Valley of Dry Bones this morning. Ezekiel sees this gigantic valley full of bones, and they're not just uh, dead bones, they're very dead bones. There's no flesh, there's no nothing on them, and they're very dead, and they're very dry. And, and honestly, I think what God is doing is picturing our spiritual condition uh, ap- apart from Jesus, right? We're, we're not mostly dead. If you get that movie reference, good for you. We are all dead, we're, we're completely dead. Our bones aren't just dead and dry. They're very dry. They're exceedingly dry. And when God wants to bring these bones to life, he comes to Ezekiel and he says, can these bones live? And Ezekiel gives a, a very, very Jewish, politically correct answer. Only you know. We see it in the book of Revelation as well when John is asked questions by angels. Only you know. And, and what does God tell Ezekiel to do? He does not say, watch what I can do. If I was really cool, I might say, hold my beer. But I'm not sure that would be entirely appropriate. He, he, he doesn't say, check this out, Ezekiel. He doesn't say, watch what I can do. He says, no, you prophesy to the bones, and then God gives Ezekiel the words that he wants Ezekiel to say. And Ezekiel speaks those words, and the bones connect to one another. They grow ligaments and tendons and muscles and organs and skin, and they're still dead. And he says, prophesy again. Now, he uses the word breath, as we see there, but interestingly... In both Greek and in Hebrew, there's not different words for wind or breath or spirit. One word is all three. And context tells us whether it's wind or breath or spirit. And so Ezekiel is is called to, to 
speak, to breathe words of the Spirit of God, to spirit words of the Spirit. I mean, it's, there, there's a word play going on there. It's not Ezekiel who does the work. It's, it's the Spirit of God who does the work to bring life to dead bones as Ezekiel speaks the words of God. And so let me rewind and say, the Word of God does the work of God by the Spirit of God. That's what we see in Ezekiel. And so Ezekiel prophesies a second time the words that God gives him, and the Spirit of God comes upon these dead bodies, and they are given life. And I think this is the picture for us of how we're to be. How does God give life to a dead church? By his word. How does God give life to a dead sinner? By his word. How does God give life to a growing saint, a saint taking steps together? By his word. You never outgrow God's word. I've heard, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, oh, I don't need to read the Bible. I read it once. That is just... Sheer, all that communicates is you, you may have read it, but you did not understand it. John chapter 14, verses 25 and 26. Jesus is predicting his death to the disciples, and they don't like it. Three times he predicts his death, and three times they say, no way, we don't want you to go. And he says something profound. First off, Though it's not in the verses I put up here today. He tells them, it's better for you if I go. Now, imagine that. How how many of you have thought, I've thought, how cool would it be to be one of the disciples who got to live with Jesus? Jesus told them that what you and I have is better than what they had. Because as they lived for three and a half years with Jesus, they were with God. But after Pentecost, after his ascension, when he sends the Holy Spirit, you and I don't live with God. God lives in us. They were with God. God is in us if we have believed by his Spirit. I think that's what he's getting at when he says that it's better for you if I go. And then he says, these things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the helper... The Holy Spirit, this word for helper, it's a word that if you've grown up in the church, you probably know, parakletos. You may have heard the Holy Spirit referred to as paraklete. It comes from two Greek words, para meaning alongside and kaleo meaning to call out. Literally, Jesus is calling the Holy Spirit the one who is called to come alongside. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things... How is he going to do that? And bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. How does the Spirit of God work in the people of God? By means of the Word of God. Paul writes 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14 to correct a church that is desperately trying to exercise the gifts of the Spirit of God apart from the commands of the Word of God. The Word of God is, it's, I mean, the Spirit of God, His primary role, His primary work in our life is to remind us of the words of God. And if He's going to remind us, that means we've got to have it in our heads to start. 
And so again, I don't want it to sound like we should only teach the word. There are many things that we should do as a church, and we're going to continue to consider those. But it does mean that the word is going to inform all that we do. So let's look quickly at uh, four point four. Did I have four, three or four? Three points, I think, today, right? Man, I'm being a good Baptist preacher. Uh, three points I want us uh, to consider from this passage in 2 Timothy. First is I want us to consider the source of Scripture. Uh, the source of Scripture. Where did the Bible come from? Well, that's the first thing Paul tells us here in 2 Timothy 3.16. He says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. This is a made-up word. Paul takes two words and jams them together, the word to breathe and the word for spirit, and he sticks them together. And so that's why some translations say God breathed. All scripture is God breathed, or as the ESV has said, breathed out by God. He wants us to understand that the source of scripture is the spirit of God, that that's where, it's, where it comes from. Peter has the same idea in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, where he says, uh, He, that is Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest. Uh, this should be 2 Peter. I got the wrong verse in here. Uh, I did this more than once, I think. 2 Peter. I'm going to have to turn there. Do you guys have 2 Peter 1, 20 up on the screen there? Yeah, I fixed it there, and I didn't fix it in my notes. Okay, 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Say, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the meaning of Scripture is not subjective to an audience or to a reader. It's objective. It has been given to us by God. No Scripture came from someone's own interpretation and therefore, our interpretations shouldn't come from our own interpretations. They weren't even produced in the will of man. These guys didn't sit around and think, man, I really want to write some scripture today. They spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This means that it wasn't, dicta it wasn't dictated to them. They weren't just uh, simple scribes where God said, hey, write these words down, and they wrote them. No, what God does is by his Spirit... He carries these men along so that what is produced is exactly what he intends for it to be, but still uses their style and their vocab and sometimes even their own thought process for processes. For example, in 1 Corinthians, when Paul says, hey, I baptized the household of a couple of people, and beyond that, I don't remember. God's not saying, hey, I don't remember who got baptized. Paul is saying I don't remember who else I, I baptized. And so the thoughts of these men and the vocab and their styles of writing were used by God as he carries them along. And so what we have, what we end up with, is what we call not the word of the apostles or the word of the prophets, but the word of God. And if, or even since, since this book is the word of God, I would contend that there's nothing more important for us to consider. Because let's just put this book aside for a moment, and let's just talk reasonably. If God exists, and if he has spoken, what is more important than that? 
if God exists and he has spoken, what's more important than that? I don't think there's anything that's more important than that. And since he has spoken, we better pay attention. And I'm, I'm here to tell you, if we're paying attention, I, I use the word may here. I'm going to fix that in my notes. If we're paying attention, we won't always like it. God's word is going to say things that don't seem sensible to us. Because our senses are trained not only by a sinful world, but in the depths of sinful hearts and minds. And so when a, a sinful world raises up the way that we're supposed to speak and we, we, or, or think and we see what's going on in the world and we go, hey, that makes sense to me, that's probably not usually a good thing. That's often our sinful hearts and sinful minds seeing what's going on in a sinful world and going, yeah, I get that. If we're paying attention to God's word, at some point it's going to, to be hard for us. It's going to offend us. We're, we're not going to be able to make sense of it. But let me ask you, who in this equation, God or us, is likely to be wrong? I, I think... I think we're far more likely to be wrong than God. So this leads us to the next point. And if you might be sitting here thinking, yeah, well, how do we know? How do we know that what's in the Bible is what these guys actually wrote? I'm not going to talk to you about that today. Uh, there's a guy in a suit back there. His name's Tony. Go ask him. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, you, you can ask Tony. You can ask me. Uh, Tony likes to think about these things, which is why I'm picking, picking on Tony. But if that's a question you have, how do we know that this book is trustworthy? Come see me. I'd love to talk to you about that. This is the single most attested to document in history. By far. That's the source of Scripture. It's the Spirit of God. What's the purpose of Scripture? Okay, so this is God's Word, and, and it always accomplishes what He purposes. What's it good for? By which I mean... What, what is it supposed to do? And the next verse gives us four things. It says, or the same verse, verse 16, says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That, here's the purpose, that the man of God, this is usually a reference to some kind of leader, uh, it's used of Ezekiel here. It's used of Timothy, who was pastoring in, in Ephesus at the time of, of this writing of Paul, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In other words, Paul is saying in verse 17 that everything a pastor, and, and therefore because a pastor is just supposed to be an example to the flock, every believer, everything you need to live the life that God wants you to live in this world is contained in this book. Everything. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's not going to dictate a plan to you. But it's going to make us the kind of people who are complete and equipped for every good work. But back to the verse 16, we see that there are four things uh, for which Scripture is useful. The first is teaching. And uh, if you did the relational elder training, um, they, they kind of summed these up very well. Uh, we'll consider what some of these words mean here shortly. But basically, the first thing Paul says is that all Scripture is breathed by God and profitable for teaching. Basically, this is telling us what to think. 
God's word is good for telling us what to think, and I would say even more than that, it's good for teaching us how to think. The second is reproof. Reproof is telling us how not to think. Scripture doesn't only tell us what to think, it tells us what not to think. It doesn't only tell us how to think, it tells us how not to think. And this is where most of us begin to squirm. I don't want something to tell me how not to think. I just want something that makes me feel good. Don't worry, chapter 4 is coming. We'll address that too. The sum of these two points means that the Bible, being that it tells us how, how to think and how not to think, is probably something we need more than ever. That, that is not to say that the world is worse than ever, nor is it to say that we're facing new challenges. In fact, come to the sexuality series, you'll probably see that there's not much new. But the means for getting us false information, bad ideas, sinful things, it's far, uh, it's, it's exceedingly beyond what generations in the past have ever had. We, we, we're not being called to think new or different things than the rest of humanity. We're just seeing a lot more of it than most of history. And the world, which Ephesians 2 tells us is a system run by Satan, I mean, it's just bombarding us with this stuff. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, uh, says that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. What strongholds? Well, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. When, when Paul issues this warning in 2 Corinthians 10 to take every thought captive, he, he's not saying, uh, hey, just when a bad thought comes to your mind, correct it. That's a small part of what he's saying. That's not a bad application of what he's saying. What he's saying is you're supposed to take the hammer of God's word and demolish the strongholds that the world has placed in your minds and hearts and how you think. We have weapons, and they demolish strongholds. And these, these things, these, these things that we think naturally or that the world calls us to think, these so-called lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God that we're supposed to take captive, they run deep, deep enough to be called strongholds. And those thoughts, they lead to disobedience. We take them captive so that we might obey Christ. And as we've spent the last four or five weeks looking at in John 15, obedience to Christ is for our joy. Why do we demolish the strongholds that the world easily plants in our minds and take our thoughts captive to obey Christ? Because that's where joy is. The word has the power to tear those down. This is why we're doing the sexuality series. Is it because the, the sins that we're going to talk about in, in the sexuality series are worse than any other sins? Nope. It's simply because that's the primary agenda that's being pushed today. That, that's what we're being asked to think about more, more than anything else. The next two uh, points in what Scripture is good for is not only how to think and how not to think, but the next one is correction. This is how not to live. Correction tells us how not to live, and training in righteousness tells us how we ought to live. Dirty Bibles always lead to dusty lives. I mean, dusty Bibles, 
We did see Wonka last week. Scratch that. Reverse it. Dusty Bibles always lead to dirty lives. Somebody else, I don't even remember who said these two quotes, but I think both of them make the point. Sin will keep you, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. It's really that simple. Scripture, God's word, is not only useful, it's profitable. It's valuable for teaching us how not to think and how to think and how not to live and how to live. This is a big part of why I preach the way I do. I don't want to give you five steps to a better marriage. If I give you five steps, you'll probably break them all today. And so will I. And we're all in that boat together for sure. Don't get me wrong. I want you to have a better marriage. But I want that better marriage to be the fruit of seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ. I want that better marriage to come from seeing who Jesus is and saying, that guy's amazing, I want to be like him. I want us to have better marriages because our spouses look at us and say, hey, you remind me of Jesus. And I I preach the way I do because not only do I want us to see the glory of Jesus, I don't want you to be dependent upon me for that. I want you to know how to read and how to understand God's word. I might fall over and die today. And I'm probably going to keep preaching until I do. I mean, not one sermon, but you know what I mean. Though some of you might feel that way. But I want us all to be able to understanding God's word and to think rightly about it. The Bible has the ability and the authority and is valuable to tell us how to live and how not to live. Let's move fast. We're running out of time. Today's service was full and we still have communion to get to. So we're going to move fast. Thirdly, the priority of scripture. Here, Paul tells us what to do with this knowledge. And this isn't just for pastors, by the way. Yes, this is a pastoral epistle. But, but it, and, and yes, this passage sets the demand on a pastor. But it also sets the expectations of the church. This tells me what my job description is. And it tells you what to expect my job description to be. And it starts with a charge. And notice who Paul brings to witness in this charge. It's quite the list. Chapter 4, verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, and, and we, we got to understand who Jesus Christ is, he is to judge the living and the dead. So I as a pastor will be judged according to this, and you as a church will be judged according to this, and your expectations of it, or lack thereof, and not only by Jesus, but his appearing that is his return, and his kingdom, not the now kingdom, the not yet kingdom. All of heaven is called to bear on Timothy and the church in Ephesus and on me and on you in what Paul's about to say. And then he says, preach the word. What is the the charge before all of these witnesses? I'm going to ask a few questions here. What's the charge before all of these witnesses? It is to preach the word. It is not only the mandate, that's the preach, but the message, that's the word. We don't preach culture, we don't preach ourselves, we don't preach 
you. We don't preach movies or Hollywood or Disney. We preach the word. And we do so in season and out of season. What is that season? I don't know. But what I do know is that whatever the season is that Paul is referring to, there's only two places you can be, in it or out of it, which I think is effectively his point. It doesn't matter whether you want to preach or not, you preach. I've been in that season. It doesn't matter whether the church wants you to preach or not, you preach. It doesn't matter if you're preaching the word fills the church or empties it, you preach it. That's the task. How are we to preach the word? Well, the next word tells us not only what the, the mandate is and what the message is, it tells us what the method is. You are to preach the word in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. This is effectively just the list that was given to us in chapter 3. He, Paul is effectively telling Timothy, you are to preach the word in the fullness of what the word is profitable for. Which means that if you think that the pastor should only be encouraging and never tell you what to do or what not to do, and he should never be uh, convicting, you're not listening rightly. Reprove, this word means to expose. It carries the idea of conviction. Preaching should expose our hearts and our lives to the light of Christ. We are to rebuke, this word means to warn and carries the idea of commanding. If you think a preacher exists only to make good suggestions, that is not what the word is profitable for. And exhort means to encourage. Not encourage as in like make you feel good, but to give courage. To, to, to say, look, we go out into the world to do a task that's hard, but we don't go alone. Preaching should expose our hearts and warn us and command us and encourage us to go out and live the lives that we're supposed to live. What is the manner in which is this is supposed to be done? This is the part I want Paul to leave out. With complete patience and teaching. What's the idea of teaching here? Well, teaching gives information. I've heard, I've mentioned this before, I've heard lots of defi different definitions about what it means to teach versus to preach. And most of them, by the way, are wrong. Because preaching is not preaching unless it contains teaching. Because here Paul is, Paul is telling Timothy to preach the word with patience and teaching. What's the difference between teaching and preaching? Teaching tells us something and preaching commands us to do something about what the teaching just told us. Teaching says, here's something true about God. Preaching says, now your life needs to do something with it. And so, so the manner that we are to do this is to be done with patience and teaching. Patience because we all grow slow. But like trees, fast growth is fragile growth. And slow growth is, is usually sturdy and can withstand the storm. And then there's a warning for churches. And this is where we'll end. That there's a time coming when people will not endure sound teaching. 
But instead, having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. In other words, what you should demand of me and anybody else who stands in this pulpit is that we say the things you don't want to hear, but need to hear. If you, would you go back to a doctor if you went and he does a scan and he finds cancer and says, you're all better, you're fine, nothing to worry about. With physicians and pastors alike, there's no room for placation. The point is to expose what's there so that it might be cut out, so that we might live. We need people to tell us the truth. The word of God is to be the priority of the church. Not because it's the only thing that matters, but because it informs all other things. And because by the power of the Spirit, it changes hearts. This is what it does. There are brand new Bible reading plans that we printed for this year at guest services. If you don't have a Bible reading plan yet for this new year, pick one up and work through it. But my prayer is that Trinity may be a church that loves the word and preaches the word until the judge returns and we see the fullness of his kingdom. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that does reprove and rebuke and exhort and convict and encourage and all the things. Lord, as we come now to your table and as we Take communion. Would you help us to, uh, to be reminded of what you have done for us in Christ? And it's in his name we pray. Amen. If those who are going to serve the elements would go ahead and come on up, we'll try and hand these uh, out somewhat quickly. If, um, if you're a believer, this is for you. If you have not yet trusted Jesus, then um, this is not for you, and there's no shame in that, but we would ask you to, to allow the, um, the elements to pass as they come to you. Um, don't forget as well that as you, uh, as you take the cups, there's two. One has bread, one has juice. Ooh, I got the, I'm extra holy today. I got the, the lucky blessed cup with two pieces of bread in it. So uh, I'm going to be extra spiritual today. Maybe I'm just feeling extra honor today. I don't know. I think the thing I would remind us of, and for the sake of time, um, I'll just make reference to a few passages here, is that, that uh, communion is th this act of taking this bread and juice, which is just bread and juice, and doesn't become anything other than bread or juice, uh, really has three purposes. It has a unifying purpose. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul tells us that because there is one bread, and that Jesus, the night when he instituted this, he took one loaf and broke that bread, and really it would have been a cracker, not a loaf, because it was Passover and it would have all been unleavened. Uh, but he took that one cracker, as we might think of it, and he broke it and he distributed it to all. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. We also see that, that there is a remembering aspect. It's not only a, a unifying act, it is a remembering act. Jesus tells the, the disciples, and Paul, as we're going to see here in 1 Corinthians 11, tells us to do this in remembrance of him. We're to remember that it was his life 
and his death that are the basis for our salvation and that by faith we become partakers. We remember his life and death and, and our participation in those through faith. And then finally, it is to be a proclaiming act. It is to proclaim to us, to one another, that, that we need something from somebody else. We need the righteousness of Christ to be our righteousness. We need his death to be our death. We, we remember not only what he, he, he was, has done for us, but we proclaim to one another our need of his work uh, on our behalf, both in life and in death. So as we finish passing out the elements, let's just take a moment of silence here and then we'll partake together. First Corinthians chapter 11 reads that Paul had received from the Lord what he's delivering to us, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, we proclaim your death and resurrection for our benefit. We proclaim our need of your righteousness applied to us. And we remember, we remember the sinless life that you lived that we have not. We remember the death you died that you did not deserve because we do. And by faith, we, we proclaim not only that we, we need from you and we are yours, but we proclaim our unity together. And may we be unified in purpose, in mission, in vision, by your word, for your glory, in Jesus' name. Could you please stand with us one more time? Last week we had a clapping song at the end. We're going to do it again. <laughs> so please clap with us. And we're going to sing, I'm so blessed. So as we're singing, um, let's just proclaim it. We are blessed. He's been good to us.
Amen. All right. Uh, just a reminder, we've got uh, gathered prayer today at 5 p.m. That's for prayer, and there's going to be a potluck as well. Let me close our service by reading Philemon, verse 25. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. God bless.